Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 19th of June 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is our Victoria State Chairman, Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we have Morrison's Recipe for Economic Catastrophe and Don't Put the Nutters in Charge of Economic Policy too. So firstly today, Morrison's Recipe for Economic Catastrophe. And we're going to talk a little bit today about um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison's proposal this week for infrastructure projects supposedly to get the country up and running again, which is woefully inadequate. Uh, but on the 17th of June, Morrison gave a press conference, this was after the infrastructure announcement, in which he, um, and he was, it was a very sombre tone actually, uh, which backs up the fact that his response is far too inadequate. He announced that unemployment had jumped to 7.1%, that some 927,600 Australians are out of work. The youth unemployment is 16.1%, mind you. Uh, but the big statistic was that in May, 227,700 Australians lost their job. And he said that Cabinet met for hours on this that night, looking at the numbers. Um, and of course, we all know we're now, uh, quote unquote, in a official recession after 29 years of allegedly um, economic growth. Uh, but this is really undermined by what's going on now. And with a new global financial crisis bearing down, this really sets the, the cards for full-scale depression. So forget recession. Now, Jeremy, um, we looked at, you wrote an article this week in our Australian Alert Service, which looked at some of the unemployment figures and also went through uh, Morrison's proposal. But the actual unemployment rate we're looking at is really more like 25%, isn't it? Oh, that's right, Elise. So if you have a look at the unemployment rate as reported by Roy Morgan. They've done surveys that indicate it's 14.8% unemployment, but then you've got to add in another nine, more than 9% uh, who are underemployed. And, and many of these people only have just a few hours of work a week and they'd, they'd love much more. So it, it adds up to about 25%. So that, that's, that's incredible. That's three and a half million Australians. Mm. You've got to also remember the fact that um, our economy and our banking system has been so dependent for so long on a housing bubble, which is overinflated and at some point has to come down. And uh, just in the news this morning, which was rather interesting, uh, was revealed that freedom of information reports showed that uh, from April, as the shutdown of the economy started, the Reserve Bank of Australia was exceedingly worried about a house price crash of up to 15%. And they were even strategising about how to potentially put a freeze on any housing sales. So this really puts a fine point uh, on what is up for grabs here unless there is a real economic recovery, particularly to the productive sector, launched. But Jeremy, give people an insight into what um, Morrison did go through. Mm -hmm. He's announced that there will be 15 infrastructure projects that will be fast-tracked, but he's only announced five of them. The others, we, I guess we'll expect a few media stunts and press conferences to spruik more infrastructure, but when you look at it, it's not really serious nation-building infrastructure. Uh, some of it really just helps the big mining companies 
uh, and a few multinationals. Some of it is useful, uh, no doubt. Uh, you have a look at, uh, there's a, a Melbourne to Brisbane inland railway, uh, useful, but it should have been built you know, decades ago. Uh, there's the expansion of the Olympic Dam, which is, is obviously going to help uh, BHP there, a major mine there. Uh, you've, you've got the Marinas Link, which is an electricity link connecting Tasmania to the mainland Australia. And really, that, that's mainly used to uh, send all the, the wind and the hydro power from Tasmania to, to mainland Australia. But if we had our own capacity in Victoria and New South Wales for baseload power, we wouldn't even need that. Uh, he's got some uh, fairly useful water projects for emergency water for New South Wales, fair enough. Uh, but that should happen anyway. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, in, in Western Australia, uh, a lot of it's road and rail projects that will help out the mining companies that iron ore projects. Uh, you know, that, that's important. But how about value adding uh, to the, the minerals and, and our mining economy to a manufacturing economy? I mean, this is really, really a pittance. We were talking in the office about how this is like bringing a knife to a, not a gunfight, but a nuclear showdown. I mean, he's talking about creating 66,000 jobs when we just wiped out 227,000 in a month. So 66,000 jobs with these 15 infrastructure projects worth a mere piddling $72 billion. Now, when we built the Snowy Scheme, um, that was 15% of our GDP at the time, which in today's terms would be the equivalent of three, a $300 billion project, just in one project, not $72 billion for 15. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break, but in the next segment we're going to give you a tour de force of what the Citizens Party has long proposed as the way to really rebuild this uh, country, if I can put it this way, in a nuclear-charged fashion. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're discussing Morrison's recipe for economic catastrophe and how what he's proposing is going to make matters worse because we need real action and we need it now uh, to crank up the real economy and to create millions upon millions of jobs. Um, and we've got a plan to do that and we wrote this plan uh, in 2002 actually, it's called uh, the Infrastructure Road to Recovery. Let's build our way out of the depression and you can contact us for a copy of this. It's glossy colour and it's got a lot of detail beyond what we can hope to cover in the course of today's show. And I just wanted to mention from the front page of this before we get into some of the Australian projects that we put all of this at that time in the context of building the Eurasian land bridge. And today's expression of that is what China's adopted with the Belt and Road. But really, this just shows you that this is not something that China has picked up. This has been a proposal that's been around for many years, and we were pushing it for a long time. And it's a worldwide program. Now, for Australia to fit into that, we have to start and take advantage of that. We have to start developing our own country. So I'm going to look at what was the centrefold map in this, um, uh, this research project. And Jeremy, I want you to go through starting because we're going to cover some other aspects, rail and power and other things. But first, we want to look at the great water projects. And in this map, we highlighted 18 projects. Of course, there's many more, smaller ones and other ones. Um, but you could build all of these 18 projects for less than $40 billion. So we could be announcing all of these right now. So Jeremy, take us through some of the key projects here. Right. Uh that uh, $40 billion uh, was uh, the estimate we put 
back then in uh, 2002. It might be a bit more now, but it's certainly very, very doable with a national bank. Uh, the Fitzroy River uh, scheme, uh, well, that, that's a potential water supply in flood of second to the Amazon River. So, you know, enormous volumes of water, which could be used there on, in location and expand uh, agriculture in that region or pipe the water down south towards Perth where they do need more water. Uh, so moving along uh, up and around uh, Australia, we've got the, uh, the uh, Fitzroy uh, and then you go up to the Ord. Uh, that is already has Lake Argyle there, but you could have much, much more use of that water there in irrigation projects. Uh, then you've got the Victoria and the, the Daly rivers up there in Northern Territory. Once again, this is in tropical Australia, so there's enormous amounts of water that could be utilised to expand agriculture up north. And I'll just add the Ord and Victoria irrigation areas have a potential, of out, a potential output of over $500 million a year in terms of developing those agricultural regions. Yeah, enormous, enormous potential up there. Uh, and then, of course, the Roper River, once again, in that uh, Northern Territory area, uh, a lot of potential there. Uh, massive water. If you have a look at a, a map of Australia and the rainfall patterns, uh, all that top north gets far, far more water than the Murray-Darling Basin, which only gets about six point something percent. And each of those major basins up north get more than 20% of the nation's rainfall. Two thirds of our um, water, surface water resources are from those northern rivers. Yeah, so uh, enormous quantities there. And then uh, Queensland, uh, this is incredible what could be done and the greatest engineers have looked at this. Uh, Bradfield, Dr Bradfield who built the Sydney Harbour Bridge, designed that, designed the Story Bridge in uh, Brisbane, he came up with the idea of sending the water from the Tully, the Herbert and the Burdekin rivers over the Great Dividing Range inland to inland Queensland and there's even proposals to send some of that water down to the Murray-Darling Basin. The reed scheme there you can see there is on the other side uh, with the, the Mitchell, the, uh, the Gilbert and the Norman rivers and all those rivers there that otherwise would flow out to the Gulf of Carpentaria. Well that could be sent uh, instead uh, along a canal and diverted into central Queensland there. Uh, moving along down there uh, to the south, uh, we've got the Clarence River scheme. I think that's, that's one of the, the most exciting schemes which would solve the problems of the Murray-Darling Basin in terms of sending the water where you've got enormous amounts of water there inland over the Great Dividing Range into the Murray-Darling Basin. Also generate hydroelectricity but uh, also you'd have flood mitigation there around the Grafton area. So that was uh, looked at by Professor Lance Endersby and uh, you'll see there a map there that uh, Professor Lance Endersby uh, did a schematic diagram of the Clarence River scheme. We collaborated with Professor Lance Endersby uh, before he passed away and had some great collaboration with him on producing all of these projects in, in this publication. And, and of course, uh, moving down south, uh, even Tasmania, enormous potential. It rains just about every single day there in, in western Tasmania. Uh, it, you know, there's virtually no days where it doesn't rain. So that, that water could be used there. Uh, there's even um, ideas that you could pipe it to uh, Victoria. There's so much water there. Yeah, now we want to talk about rail next, Jeremy, because we're going to be opening up a mammoth agricultural capacity, which the world, I should say, desperately needs today. 
Um, so there's pros prospects for high-speed rail, such as, for instance, the Asian Express, which Professor uh, Lance Endersby also devised, which would put us within one to four days from the two largest ports in the world, which are currently Shanghai and Singapore. Um, and he had other pr prospects, such as the... Um, uh, the Ring Rail project as well, which is part of that same conception. Um, but you, do you want to say something about high-speed rail and what sort of technologies we should be looking at? Sure. Well, the the high-speed rail in China is mostly the the regular steel wheel on the steel rail, and they're going around up to 350 kilometres an hour. They can go faster. Uh, then again, uh, there's the maglev technology which really uh, we should be looking at. China's already looking at it. They've, they've got the, uh, the track, which is it's open commercially open there at Shanghai, and that does over 400 kilometres an hour. Uh, Australia, with the massive distances, we could look at the, the high-speed maglev type of uh, trains, but also there's other proposals which are uh, really taking off in uh, the design and uh, the experimental stages at the moment, there's none commercially open, but it's called uh, vacuum maglev, where you have a tube that's evacuated and you have the, the maglev transport in the tube. Um, Hyperloop's one of the, the companies that's looking at this, but that would be ideal for a, a route across, say, the Nullarbor Plain, where you've got a massive distance uh, where you could go faster than an aeroplane. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of technology we should be looking at more and more. Uh, the current proposals uh, by the government are just the regular trains doing about 100 and something kilometres an hour. Uh, nothing new. I mean, they were doing that 100 years ago. And obviously with, you know, all these markets to our north, we need to be moving a lot of produce across land rather quickly, especially when you're talking about um, the demand for a lot of fresh produce, fruit and veg, exotic fruit and so forth. Uh, in Asian countries and one of the things in that regard that we could be looking at too and, and all these projects have been proposed decades ago it's not like we're coming up with something new here um, but high-speed shipping we had um, WA's Austel ships and Tasmania's INCAT for years have been world leaders in high-speed catamarans um, and of course you know we need the rail and the development port development in the top end to support this but speaking of shipping um, of course Australian hat Australia has created a national shipping line a number of times in our history. In World War I, we found ourselves in a position where we couldn't rely on British shipping and other shipping. The same thing happened in World War II and we had to create it out of nowhere and we did it really well. And ANL, the shipping line we had during World War II, was extremely profitable, paying huge dividends to the government. But it was sold off, of course, in 1998, as we've sold off everything. And interestingly, a 2016 review by the Strategic Marine Group found that the current legislative environment entrenches, quote, foreign control of Australia's maritime supply chain and moves economic benefits offshore, which is what we're finding, you know, in virtually every area that we're looking at. And with all the discussion now about Australia becoming less dependent upon other nations, these are things that we need to look at urgently. Uh, now, one of the things I wanted to mention was because we want to have a revival and we need to have a revival to do all of this of our manufacturing capacity and particularly uh, machine tool building, which we have had a cutting edge advantage across the world in at previous times, particularly with our World War II mobilisation, is the subject of power. And of course, we have a section, whole section in this paper, Jeremy, about nuclear power. But do you want to talk a bit about the requirement of cheap power for doing all this? Yes, the manufacturing in Australia that we used to 
have so much more of uh, required that cheap power and you can't do that with these wind farms that are very erratic, sometimes the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you need constant you know, base load power, power that you can rely upon and that is cheap power. Now uh, the coal power is cheap, uh, there is a move away from coal but there is an alternative of nuclear and nuclear is cheap. Uh, now there's a lot of misinformation about nuclear, I know it's too expensive, well uh, if you have a look at the uh, United States that was until recently uh, the world's powerhouse, uh, that has more nuclear power than anywhere else and, and that actually gave United States its strength. Uh, France uh, runs most of its electricity from nuclear power and it's very safe with the modern nuclear reactors. They have all these different safety measures that you can't get a meltdown uh, with the, the new designs that they're looking at, the fourth generation nuclear power. And then there's the modular style reactors which even our government is seriously looking at because yeah. it's taking off all over the world. And if, if we just ignore that, well the rest of the world will go along and we'll be stuck with these wind turbines which in um, 20 years time won't be working anyway because they have a limited lifespan. Uh, they don't last nearly as long as a conventional power plant. So you know the, the, uh, the modular style nuclear reactors are smaller whereas the, the big ones are around about a thousand uh, megawatts uh, but the, the modular ones you, you could have a you know a, a hundred or two hundred or, or something even smaller uh, and you can just build one and one and one and, and, mm -hmm. and add them up uh, to whatever you need. Uh, so that, that's the kind of thing for, for Australia for mm -hmm. remote regional locations a small modular reactor is going to be far more useful than some massive you know 1000 megawatt uh, reactor. Now I want to say a quick word about how to fund all of this and we talked about it in more detail last week and that of course is uh, national banking and we have a proposal that is being put onto the table in the Senate and the Parliament at the moment for a Australian national bank along the lines of what we had with the original Commonwealth Development Bank and Government Senator Jared Rennick raised this last week um, and he really went into the lion's den as we said in the lead of our Australian Alert Service because this has been the most bitterly fought issue in our history. Um, in 1908, King O'Malley said we should not borrow capital but should create it. And he talked about uh, how if any state needed money to build rail, to build anything, we could immediately issue it from that banking system. Um, he gave a five-hour speech in 1909 where he said, in a real crisis, the only way to present, prevent widespread distress or panic is to immediately expand the issue of cheap loans into production. Uh, but he said the private banking corporations refuse to administer the prescription because it is dangerous to their monopoly and that's what we have to change now. So call your Member of Parliament as we've been asking people to do, make sure they know about a proposal for a national bank uh, and yeah, keep harassing them about it. Now we've got to take a break but we'll be right back to discuss um, the nutters being put in charge of economic policy. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing don't put the nutters in charge of economic policy too uh, because they are already running our foreign policy and this was referred to by uh, former Prime Minister Paul Keating in May 2019 where he said the security agencies, or when the security agencies are running foreign policy, the nutters are in charge. And of course he said they'd lost their strategic bearings when it came to Beijing. And he said, when you have the ASIO chiefs knocking on MPs' doors, you know something's wrong. And, you know, it really is impossible to have 
um, proper diplomacy if that's what's taking place. And now our government is opening the door for the spy agencies to determine economic policy too. This is coming up in the context of Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, pushing for a regular economic dialogue between Five Eyes finance ministers to quote-unquote ensure global financial stability, which is their watchword for putting the financial system first, and a strong, sustainable and balanced economic recovery. And we've just seen what that kind of a balanced recovery looks like with Scott Morrison's proposal, pathetic proposal to revive the economy, which will not work. Um, now, Prime Minister Morrison said, um, according to ABC, that Australia was working to take the Five Eyes into the commercial sphere in order to build trusted supply chains. But a report from the United States Studies Centre is warning that a whole suite of US-led regulatory changes will transform uh, global technology supply chains and have major implications for Australia, and this could leave us in the lurch. Now, Peter Jennings from Aspie, who's part of the um, you know, cut all ties with China crowd, he affirmed that it is aimed at China. He said, we have to address the security implications of the economic relationships in a way we haven't had to since World War II. Then it was the Soviets, but most conversations within Five Eyes now, he said, are about China. Uh, and also veteran journalist uh, David Tui had a commentary on this where he basically spelled out the fact that Australia's government and security agencies are enthralled with the Five Eyes led by the US National Security An Agency which makes aggressive use of cyber espionage te techniques that it condemns in others. And he said, be careful because we will be, we will end up on the front line of a full-scale hot war against China. Now, I wanted to mention the fact that, um, you know, being aimed at China is not so much aimed at China as China's policy and particularly reviving the Eurasian land bridge proposal that we pushed for so many years and bringing nations together to uplift their economies through cooperation and through development and big infrastructure projects. And of course, China's using um, the issuance of state credit to do that. It has Glass-Steagall laws to prevent money being diverted away into speculation, which has caused so much of the problem that we're in today, why we have no real productive economy. Um, so I wanted to mention the fact that the Five Eyes was founded around this fight and it prevented the Belt and Road happening once before. Um, the Five Eyes has its origins in wartime uh, agreements between the UK and USA, which started during World War II, was called the UK-USA Agreement. And after the war, uh, the US and the UK actually collaborated to sabotage a plan for US-China cooperation, which was being run by the Vice President at the time, Henry Wallace. And in fact, it was none other than the author Roald Dahl, who was military attaché at the British Embassy in Washington, uh, who was working for the British Security um, Cooperation Organisation, which was <clears throat> an offshoot of MI6, that actually purloined a copy of Henry Wallace's program to rebuild uh, China and other Asian countries with developing and industrialising them. It was called Our Job in the Pacific. Um, and by doing that, they also ran a campaign against Henry Wallace, which meant that he was not re-elected as the vice presidential running mate to Roosevelt. And therefore, when Roosevelt died, he didn't become uh, the president. So these kind of operations which have been run in history before are happening again and we can't allow them to go on. Yeah, well, we have a lot to lose. Uh, you know, China's a massive economy. We're a tiny little blip compared to them. 
we can't win a trade war and, and a hot war is unthinkable. The mm -hmm. whole thing's insane. Absolutely. And you can read more about background-wise about all these topics because every week we research and write them for our Australian Alert Service newsletter. We never have time to go through all the gory detail, but it is there. You can go to our website to find out more and you can contact us if you haven't done so before to get a complimentary copy. And don't forget, ring your Member of Parliament, annoy them about national banking, about the real programs we need to have in place. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Alyssa. And see you next week. Mm -hmm.